Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 24th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore these challenges. A few weeks ago, we had retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley on our show to talk about the Defense Intelligence Agency and the U.S. intelligence community as a whole. You may recall he talked about the fact that defense attaches from the various services work under DIA in support of the Secretary of Defense, military commanders, and the ambassadors at U.S. embassies abroad. There are other programs that are similar to the defense attache program, wherein military officers might specialize in language, culture, or regional expertise, and that program is called the Foreign Area Officer, or FAO, program. Today we're going to talk about the defense attache offices at the U.S. embassies around the world and the role of foreign area officer specialists who often serve as defense attaches, but also serve in many other capacities. We're fortunate enough to have two very experienced officers who've served in these fields as our guests today. Colonel Brett Seiling received his commission in 1994 after graduating from the United States Air Force Academy with a bachelor's degree in political science. He has served in a number of staff and operational tours, including at U.S. Special Operations Command, as the Air Force liaison element to the U.S. Army's 18th Airborne Corps, and as the Air Attaché in Jordan. Colonel Seiling also served in the Special Operations Liaison Element in the Combined Air Operations Center in Southwest Asia during Operation Iraqi Freedom. He deployed to Iraq twice, first as a member of the Combined Weapons Effectiveness Assessment Team and later in the U.S. Embassy. Colonel Seiling also served as the commander of the Global Activities Squadron, followed by an assignment as the chief of the International Engagement Division on the U.S. Air Force staff. Colonel Seiling was also the Air Force Senior Service Advisor to, in the Directorate of Operations at DIA, and he followed that assignment with service as the U.S. Air Attaché to the United Arab Emirates. Colonel Brett Seiling assumed his current duties as Chief of the International Airmen Division under the Secretary of the Air Force Staff in August of 2021. Our other guest is Commander, Commander Andrew Kotala. Andrew Kotala is a Minnesota-based civilian attorney focused on partnership and alliance management, and he's also a 21-year U.S. Navy Reserve officer, where he served since 2017 as one of the first reserve foreign area officers following the Navy's creation of a reserve cadre of military diplomat foreign engagement specialists, or FAOs, as they're known in the military. Andrew holds a B.A. in political science and economics from McGill University and a Master of Arts in International Peace and Conflict Resolution from American Military University, and his Juris Doctorate is from Suffolk University. He's a member of the Minnesota and District of Columbia Bar Associations, and he's a graduate of the U.S. Naval War College. As a commander in the Navy Reserve, selected for promotion to captain in 2022, he's held various assignments uh, in, in the Defense Attaché Service, the Naval War College, U.S. European Command, and U.S. Naval Forces Europe as an analyst, Reserve Naval Attaché, and Engagement and Exercise Planner. 
Colonel Brett Siling and Commander Andrew Kotala, welcome to National Security This Week. Well, thank you, John. (laughs) Thank you, John. It's great to be here today. So Andrew's in the studio with me, and uh, Colonel Siling, you are uh, where? I'm in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, so it's good to see you guys uh, virtually. Yeah, we're on Zoom with you, so hopefully we'll keep a good signal this week. Uh, Gentlemen, let's cover your respective backgrounds just a bit more. Colonel Siling, I'll start with you. Can you briefly remind us where you've served as an air attache? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you did on a daily basis as an air attache. Sure, absolutely. So I I was the air attache of Jordan from 2010 to 2014. And uh, a lot of jobs in the military, uh, your day-to-day job of what you thought you were going to do, and sometimes what you walked in and and what you had to do uh, changed drastically. But the key thing that we're supposed to do is we are the chief of staff of the Air Force representative to that country and to the country team, to the ambassador uh, for all air issues, but also to, you know, my, in my case, Royal Jordanian Air Force. Um, and the key thing we're doing is building the partner relationships, having that daily interface with the partner nation and really keeping a pulse of what's going on in the country. And another key thing that's important for uh, what we do as air attaches is we are uh, a control officer or want to see a planner for high level visits. And that could be at the Air Force level, the chief of staff of the Secretary of the Air Force, or people from the Office of Secretary of Defense, from the um, Secretary himself and other principals. And when they come in country, we really set up all the meetings with the host nation and uh, really are driving and shaping the political military relationships for these, for these visits. Um, one of the key things that we do ahead of time before the principal comes is we'll meet with the the host nation to find out what kind of issues they want to talk about, what's important to them. And then we can go to the principal staff and kind of get them ready for the visit so we can have a very constructive visit uh, when they hit the ground. And also, when I was in Jordan, they uh, we have an extremely close relationship with uh, the Jordanians, and they look at the air attache as senior Air Force official in country. So not only am I doing my uh, era, air, our air attache mission, but it also really has to be tracking what's going on in the security cooperation arena as well. And then, as you uh, alluded to in the, in the intros, I also recently was the chief attache ops in the air attache in, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Um, that was a different kind of relationship than what we had with Jordan, but it was a very important one as well, especially what's going on in the region. And again, key thing is just maintaining those relationships. That's essentially what, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Okay. And if I could follow up a little bit on your, your time in Jordan, uh, I, I happen to be a little bit aware of the fact that the United States and Jordan have a ridiculously close relationship and that King Abdullah II of Jordan is a tremendously close friend of the United States. Uh, so I have to imagine that that tour was a, a, a really interesting opportunity for you. It, it was. It was as a at the time as lieutenant colonel to uh, literally being able to text the uh, commander of the Royal Jordanian Air Force uh, on issues to set up meetings to um, interact with is, I'd say, almost unparalleled to anywhere. They are all in with with the U.S. and, and having just an extremely close relationship. And uh, Commander Kotala, same for you. You're an officer in the U.S. Naval Reserve, but you've served in these DAO positions. Where have you served and what did you do on a daily basis in some of these positions? 
Sure, John. We've got a great introduction from Colonel Seiling as to overall view of a FAO. Uh, a little bit different for me as I'm a Navy Reserve officer. I've held several assignments with Navy Reserve units across our fleets and have deployed to Bosnia and Afghanistan for longer-term service uh, prior to becoming a, a foreign area officer, 2016-2017 uh, timeframe. As a foreign area officer, I'm called in from time to time to support the active duty Navy when they need extra support to staffs, have transitioning personnel, or a need to leverage some of the unique skill sets that a reserve team can bring in from the civilian world in addition to military training as FAOs, business managers, government employees, academics, diplomats, lawyers, to name a few. I'm personally specialized in the European region, so for me, that's meant I've supported several of our defense attache offices and U.S. embassies across Europe for shorter and longer periods, as well as our Naval Forces Europe staff based in Naples, all duties where we need the same coordination that Colonel Seiling has spoken to working with our partners and allies. All right. And maybe both of you could comment on this. What, what is the broader role of having defense attaches and embassies around the world? I mean, how, how does that serve U.S. national security interests? And maybe, uh, Andrew, I'll start with you, and then we'll move over to you, uh, Brett. Sure. That's a great question, John. Our Navy and our other services, of course, including the Air Force, uh, foreign area officers, are really regional experts and what we like to call strategic effect operators for our services. That means we, we carry out the national strategy by working closely with our partners to produce those desired effects. We work closely with our foreign allies and partners. We manage information and influence, access to and interoperability with our allies and partners, meaning basically understanding well how our militaries can work well together to advance those, those strategic partnership goals. Uh, we're sent to assignments where we're well positioned to provide political military advice to our services, to U.S. ambassadors, to our U.S. military theater commanders, to the folks back at the Pentagon, and to other government stakeholders to fuse together really national-level insights from the nation where we're working and effects in line with our U.S. national security and defense strategies in order for the U.S. military to advance those strategies overall and to do so effectively and efficiently. Uh, the role of a defense attache more specifically includes staying really well informed on U.S. national policy and those partner or host nation policies and interests in order that we can provide that well-informed insight from the host country, from our partners, and advice related to that back to our U.S. stakeholders and decision makers. And that's really how we tie back to serving U.S. national security interests. Okay. And uh, Colonel Siling, what would you like to, to add onto that? No, that was a good rundown. And, uh, you know, every country that wants to further their national security interests. And I think the beauty of the defense attache is it's really like a Venn diagram where you have our national security interests, the host nation's national security interests, and where we work is that theme, that overlap between those two um, circles of national security interests. And so it really is about building that par partner capacity, especially so uh, they can pitch in in a coalition fight. We really are comfortable. We work together, exercise together. And so, like in the case of Jordan, when the fight against ISIS really kicked off, uh, we had the intel sharing, basing, <clears throat> operations. Everything was ready to go because we've been working closely for so long. And, and I would uh, like to comment that, you know, when you're in uh, an embassy assignment as a defense attache, uh, you're in a, a system where there are a whole bunch of defense attaches from other countries around the world uh, in that capital, and you get to know them as well. So there's another opportunity there to build relationships, uh, to create that trust between 
uh, professional officers from militaries around the world. Uh, maybe both of you could also comment a little bit on the laydown of air and naval attaches and the DAO officers around the world. Uh, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Is it, is it dozens? Is it hundreds? Uh, and does America get a significant return on investment for perpetuating the DAO program? And, and I'll turn to you, Colonel Siling, for, for this one. Uh, you can start us off. Right. So it, it's definitely not dozens. It's uh, in the hundreds. And it's, we're not in, in every embassy, but you can imagine just about any country that's got a significant air force is where we try to have our air attaches. And sometimes we have assistant air attaches in, in uh, countries where we have a large portfolio and absolutely get the return on investment. Um, we've both talked about that building the partner capacity and, and strengthening those relationships. Uh, but another thing that we, we kind of haven't talked about is there is an, an observe and report kind of mission that our ashes have. And it really is just following the events that's going on in the country and just knowing that uh, we're up on the current events and then we can get that information back to uh, to our policymakers back in D.C. so they're aware of what's going on. Okay. And Andrew, what do you have to say? Sure. Uh, great question again, John. Uh, Colonel Seiling gave, gave a little bit of air flavor to that, uh, similar for the Navy. <laughs> uh, Navy has, has officers all around the world, but we're, we're looking at it with a, a maritime view as well. So I don't have exact numbers on hand, but we're also in the hundreds. And I can say that most of our U.S. embassies around the world have one or more foreign area officers assigned uh, to support the, the capabilities we've been discussing here, uh, several of them from, from the Navy. Um, our Navy FAOs also serve in security cooperation offices, working closely with our inter-service colleagues, such as Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, uh, Coast Guard as well, and then embassy staff from the State Department and other U.S. agencies uh, in those roles. We serve at Fleet and Joint Force Headquarters, as well as on the Navy staff at the Pentagon. Again, we're what the Navy calls strategic enablers to support those those ally and partner relationships that Colonel Seiling and I mentioned with that regional, strategic, and political military expertise to advance our national security and, and uh, service interests. Now, when it comes to where we have Navy FAOs around the world, again, uh, our focus tends to be maritime, that we do work very closely together with our, with our inter-service colleagues and inter-agency colleagues uh, everywhere we are. And... Uh, you know, our Navy FAO personnel tend to be stationed in locations where those maritime security topics are, are prevalent. Uh, on the return on investment we get from FAOs, the foreign engagements we support and the partnerships we're responsible for building really at the ground level are often cornerstone elements of our national and regional strategies uh, that, that many of you can, can read if you're interested. Um, and, and it's becoming more prevalent. So I'd say we get a very high return on revest investment for training FAOs and, and putting them in these forward assignments around the world, uh, including in defense attache offices as attaches, but also in these other forward assignments, such as a security cooperation office, um, an, an exchange program, a fleet staff, a headquarters, for example. Um, with regard to the, the maritime domain, it's uh, very important to the Navy that somewhere around 95% of all global commerce, right. goods and information, uh, goes through the maritime domain. And, and you will appreciate this yes, as a absolutely. retired naval officer, John. Um, so upholding those um, you know, sea lanes and maritime security issues are, are really of utmost importance to the Navy, and, and to, it's a vital national security interest. Uh, we don't do that alone uh, as, as just Navy FAOs. We, of course, do that with other services, including in many cases the Coast Guard when it comes to that maritime domain, and uh, very closely with our allies and partners, their armed forces. And sometimes we're, we're working directly with those forces. Sometimes we're even organized in joint maritime task forces. Um, you know, it's very important to maintain and strengthen those, those ground-level relationships 
in order to be able to uphold that that maritime security aspect, working in collaboration with our partners. Um, Navy FAOs, I can say, are really key to all of those inter-service and international partnerships where where maritime security is prevalent, and uh, also in those areas where we have growing uh, maritime security interests around the world. All right. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Colonel Brett Seiling from the U.S. Air Force and Commander Andrew Kotala from the U.S. Naval Reserve. We're discussing the Defense Attaché Program and the Foreign Area Officer Program in the Department of Defense. Uh, so, Andrew, uh, let's start with you on this next segment. Uh, the Foreign Area Officer Program in the U.S. Navy, specifically. Uh, how are you selected and trained, and how does the Naval Reserve uh, support the FAO program? And, and we'll, we'll move to Colonel Seiling next to talk a little bit about the same thing in the Air Force side. Sure, John. I'm, I'm happy to talk about the Navy side, and I think you'll find a lot of commonality between services. Um, a lot of these programs are, are driven by Defense Department objectives to build the, the foreign area officer capability across the forces. But speaking, speaking specifically to the Navy side, uh, Navy is, is t- typically looking for mid to senior grade officers, either on the active or reserve side, who have demonstrated uh, superior performance in, in comparison to their peers in a warfare specialty, so in a more technical military specialty leading up to their selection as a FAO. Um, in addition to that, uh, they're looking for people who have engagement experience uh, with our, our foreign allies and partners. Um, they've demonstrated performance in being able to advance our, our national defense strategy, strategy objectives um, with real emphasis now on strategic competition uh, around the world. And these are themes I know you've, you've spoken to in, in previous shows. Um, on top of that, some of the technical qualifications were required to test at a professional proficiency level in one or more languages of our region of specialization using a test that the Defense Department calls the Defense Language Proficiency Test. Okay. So we, we take a language test every year, uh, and we've got to have a master's degree or higher education in a topic related to international affairs or re- uh, regional security studies, along with that past experience. Um, Navy's com- uh, foreign area officer community is newer than the Army's, for example, uh, but it's really become an established community in the Navy, and the Chief of Naval Operations, the, the senior officer in the Navy, yeah. has recently called the FAO community uh, indispensable to the Navy. Mm. So it's uh, it's been an up-and-coming community in the Navy, but one that's really solidified its its place uh, and role in our military now. Um, so it's really a mid-to-senior-grade officer who's, who's been a high performer in earlier ranks and can demonstrate special skills and aptitude for regional political military affairs, cultural expertise, and foreign languages, and someone who's well-prepared to advance the Navy's strategic needs and is ready to work around the world. Uh, this goes, I would say, equally for the active and reserve force, okay. although active force is on duty all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, we're, we're called in to, to support that force. Could be for a year or more, or could be for a few weeks at a time. Sure. Uh, and, and Brett Seiling, uh, you lead the International Airmen Division for the Secretary of the Air Force. T- tell us a little bit about that assignment. You know, what do you oversee? Uh, how do you select your personnel and get them trained uh, to go out and serve uh, America's interests abroad? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for that. So we do have a, a kind of interesting portfolio uh, in our division. Uh, we uh, first thing is I am the crew field manager for our, our foreign area officers, and so as that was we already kind of talked about. You know, these are deliberately developed officers uh, that we send uh, to get a regional master's degree. Most of our folks go to naval post graduate school. And then Defense Language Institute to get their uh, language 
and then we send them for six months to uh, for in-region training. So those are the kind of three things that our officers need to be to get certified to be a FAO. Uh, but we also manage our attache program. So we select all the air attaches and assistant air attaches and the NCOs that also go into defense attache offices around the world. And we also manage our security cooperation officers as well. And so kind of the new thing for us now is, especially lieutenant colonel and majors, uh, we're trying to do 100% fill with those attaches and security cooperation officers with FAOs. We are uh, actually have made some changes to our program recently. And also another important part that we do in our division is we manage the military personnel exchange program. So people may not realize that we have 44 partner nations where we have exchange officers. So we send officers to their country and then they send officers to uh, the U.S. And these could be pilots, these could be maintainers, these could be loadmasters. It's a wide range of career fields where we can exchange best practices between our countries. And also the... Uh, Last thing that we cover is the overseas developmental education. So we have a number of countries where we send majors and lieutenant colonels for uh, school. And then we also have send uh, colonels for like a war college equivalent. So they're going to a foreign country and doing their studies in that host nation's language and then bringing that expertise back to the U.S. Air Force. So it sounds to me from what the two of you have said about the foreign area officer program specifically is that you're looking for really high-performing officers uh, who have uh, either acquired or, or have the ability to acquire uh, at least a master's degree uh, and demonstrated language proficiency, uh, and you you trust them enough to send them off almost on sort of independent assignments where they are expected to uh, carry out the needs of the Air Force or the Navy uh, with host countries abroad in sometimes very difficult and challenging circumstances. And they are trained and, well, screened and trained to uh, to carry out those jobs. Is that a, a kind of a good summary? I think you're spot on, John. Okay. And, and right. I listened to Colonel Seiling describe some of the Air Force programs, many, many of which have parallels in the Navy. But as you note, uh, a lot of those are one-off assignments or, or uh, small group assignments where, where people are, are forward working those partner and ally engagements every day. And in no, your, I agree. That's absolutely good assessment. Okay. Yeah. And in your respective services, it sounds like uh, you've, you've really professionalized the career track for the foreign area officers and that they are starting to fill, if they haven't already filled, a majority of the defense attache uh, office assignments. Is that is that tr- correct? Brett, I'll start with you. Okay, sure. Absolutely. So the new thing for us, for our uh, FAO program, we used to be, we they called it a, a dual track. So you were for me, I was an uh, intelligence officer, and then I became a foreign area officer. And then through my career, I was expected to go back and forth between the two career fields, which was really hard to manage to be a proficient uh, intel officer and FAO. So recently, within the last year, we've done away with that, and we've become a core career field. So once you become a FAO, you're a FAO, and you, you stay and do that. You may, down the road, after a couple of assignments, have an opportunity to go back to your original career field for uh, um, for a period of time, if it has an international relations kind of flavor to it, you know, when we're calling those fail enabled tours. So that really is helping out. So, yes, as you were talking about, our goal is to 100% lieutenant colonels and majors fill in those attache and security cooperation with FAOs. At the colonel level, that, that's a little more difficult for us. We're probably at about 50% uh, able to have career FAOs fill those colonel positions. 
Uh, it's going to take a while to, to build that bench, but we're moving out in that direction. And so overall, we have about 400 billets that we're trying to fill. We're not quite there yet. The ideal mix is to have 1.5 FAOs per billet, just so because people are doing training and other things. And, and that's going to take a little, little bit to get there, but we're moving in that direction. And, and to clarify for our audience, the term billet, uh, what do you mean by billet? So position. So it's not just the people that actually have a, a place, a position where we can actually put somebody in. So we can't just move people around. There actually has to be a position number somewhere in an, in an embassy that we have, can move an officer into that position. Yeah. And every one of those those billets that are in the U.S. military are approved by Congress for payment in the budgets. So that's one of the reasons why we track every single billet in the military to make sure that it's fully paid for and that you have somebody fulfilling that assignment. Uh, Andrew, how about you? How about on the Navy side? Sure. I, I think that's all true. Uh, Colonel Seiling gave a great background. I, I think it's true across the services, and I can speak particularly to the Navy, that we, we've grown and professionalized the Foreign Area Officer Program over the last 20 years or so, uh, given the increased value placed on the, on the skill sets that, that FAOs bring to our, our national strategy, our defense strategy, uh, over that same time period. So we could say several of our personnel serve in defense attache office roles, and, and as our community has grown over that 20 years or so, uh, there are more trained and, and ready FAOs available for those roles. But I also think it's important to stress, as, as Colonel Seiling mentioned, um, our, our foreign area officers are not only in defense attache roles. Uh, they bring a lot of specialized talent there, but that same talent is also used really anywhere we plan or carry out engagements and uh, build relationships with our partners and allies, including those security cooperation office roles that Colonel Seiling also mentioned, including in our fleet uh, staff headquarters, including our, our joint operational staff headquarters, where that localized knowledge, that relationship knowledge is, is very important to bring, uh, to coordinate with, with all of our forces and our efforts. Okay. And so we've been covering the, the Air Force and the Navy uh, pretty pretty much so far. Uh, can, can the two of you comment a bit on how the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps handles their respective programs? Maybe the Coast Guard and Space Force, too. Uh, I, know, I know they're different than your services, but uh, and I don't expect you to be experts on this topic, but maybe you've heard some things. Uh, Brett, maybe you're in a, a good position as the head of the program there for the Air Force to know what's happening in the other services. Cross-pollination happens all the time in our joint forces. Uh, Brett, let's start with you. Uh, what, what have you heard about the other services? So for the other services, so the Army, it, it's kind of a little bit what we've modeled of going to, you know, well, you know, they have a, what they call a single track. So, uh, for example, you may have a special forces officer who, who does the job for seven to ten years, and then they cut their career pyramid. There's only so many that can get promoted and move up, so it's a good position where they can move over and become a foreign area officer. And once they make that, that crossover, then they are a career foreign area officer. And historically, I've just been amazed at, at the amount of time that they're able to go into a region or a country. And I use the example, I had one of my uh, last spent at the Chase in Jordan, um, the officer had done his in-region training in Jordan. He came back and was the training officer in Jordan, came back and went to National Defense University in Jordan, and then became the defense attache. Wow. So on day one, <laughs> he can, you know, he knows the chairman of defense intimately. They've known each other for years. And that, again, is just that, that time on target and building the, 
uh, strengthening those relationships. You just can't replicate that when you have somebody that has so many reps in, in a country. And I, and I have uh, to imagine that particular individual probably speaks uh, Arabic like a native. Uh, he knows oh. how to swear and tell jokes in Arabic, uh, <laughs> which, which is they, a good indicator of your language skills. And they know the ins and outs of the countries. They know all the tribes. They know who the power makers are. Uh, you, you know, that's just something that you, you don't get uh, in one tour. That takes multiple tours to yeah. be able to get in and uh, and sit in a meeting and look at name cards and know all the people in the room and, you know, what tribes are from and, you know, who the power brokers are. That, that takes a lot of time on target. Yeah. How, how about the Space Force? Uh, is the Space Force moving in this direction at all? I know they're pretty new. They are new, and it's kind of a work in progress. They are looking at having a kind of an international guardian uh, program, and that's something that, that we're going to be working with them to try to figure out how, what that's going to look like, uh, whether they'll have attaches and embassies, or, you know, because historically, as the air attache, we were covering air and space. That was mm-hmm. our portfolio. Now, stand up Space Force, uh, we'll have to see how that's going to play out. Andrew, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Marine Corps and Coast Guard since they're our fellow naval services. Sure. I, I'm not as well equipped as Colonel Siding to discuss the other <laughs> services, and I think you get a great overview of, of Air Force and mention of Space Force programs. Uh, I, I think uh, Colonel Siding mentioned the Army's program is there, and it's been around for quite a long time as well. Um, generally, I can say each service has their own focus in working with our partners, although we do work closely together with our, with our inter-service peers and colleagues. Uh, the Navy's focus, of course, is, is on that maritime domain, but not solely. Uh, again, we're working in joint environments, joint yeah. staffs, operational staffs uh, to plan with our partners. And then, of course, each service has their own uh, related HR development plans and personnel policies to be able to develop and place those FAOs uh, where they best serve that services needs and, and particular interests. Um, you know, we might call that force shaping uh, on the civilian side. You might call it right-sizing the workforce and, mm-hmm. and uh, building up the development plans behind that. Um, those joint environments where we work go, goes for most of the military today. We, we work frequently closely together, um, but we're working as FAOs. We're working with other inter-service peers who have similar cultural language and regional skills, but they may bring different technical skills and backgrounds corresponding to their service specialties, traditions, and policies. So if you mentioned the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, uh, we're looking at amphibious operations. We're looking at law enforcement on the seas. Uh, those personnel bring that expertise to, uh, you know, to to the profession uh, alongside us, and we coordinate closely with them. Um, I've personally worked in joint environments where my colleagues really bring a great deal to the table in in being, terms of being able to talk those technical details with our partners. Uh, if you're talking land, amphibious, space forces, in the context of training, let's say aviation issues, coastal or law enforcement issues, uh, things where my own expertise as a Navy officer uh, may be limited. Okay, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Colonel Brett Siling from the U.S. Air Force and Commander Andrew Kotala from the U.S. Naval Reserve. We're discussing the Defense Attaché Program and the Foreign Area Officer Program in the Department of Defense. All right, gentlemen, we've discussed the Defense Attaché offices at the U.S. embassies around the world, and we've discussed the Foreign Area Officer Program in both of your services and some of the other services. Let's get into some some challenges around the world and how officers serving in these these assignments, uh, how they impact American national security. And let's take a look, maybe let's start with a strong NATO ally, Germany, as an example. 
uh, and consider how FAOs and DAOs might uh, might work with Germany uh, in in a situation. Uh, Colonel Seiling, I'll start with you in a day-to-day engagement with the Germans. Uh, how do defense attaches work with the German military? Now, that's a, that's a good question. So, again, this is a strong ally uh, and partner, somebody that's got already a great capacity uh, as a military. But one of the things is uh, as a FAO or an attache, I mean, you're going to be working combined exercises is uh, a very important thing. And also, like I, th- I talked about before, a high-level visit. It's just about being able to facilitate those, um, whether it's Secretary of Defense or whoever coming in country, of just uh, making those visits successful. Another key important thing is just information sharing and making sure that both countries have got a common operating picture and we're seeing, uh, whether it's crisis or something going on around the world, that we uh, are seeing the same thing. And also, we kind of talked about the security cooperation, and that's the foreign military sales, and that's an important thing. And that not just us wanting to sell things to a strong partner like Germany. The key thing there is interoperability, and especially with a NATO partner. So if there is a, a coalition fight with uh, our NATO partners, that we have equipment that actually can talk to each other. If we have our partners buying other foreign, whether it's Chinese systems or everything, if we go into a coalition fight, they're not going to be able to be interoperable and talk to each other. So that's a key thing to make sure that we're on the same page. Okay, and uh, Commander uh, Cotilla, your turn. If you were a foreign air officer assigned to Commander U.S. European Command, which I think you have been in the past, uh, yes. how would you work with the German military if Western Europe was your regional specialty area? I mean, what would you do on a daily basis? Sure, certainly. So, so Colonel Seiling already gave a good background with the example of Germany being a, a close NATO ally. We have really long-standing relationships uh, since since uh, post-World War II era. And as everyone knows, we, we've traditionally had uh, forces stationed in Europe. So there's a lot of interaction from day to day. Uh, speaking a bit more uh, on the Navy side, our ongoing security cooperation with the German Navy includes several facets. Uh, Colonel Seiling addressed uh, sales, uh, foreign military sales, and then interoperability of our equipment. Uh, but I should mention there's also a lot of training that goes mm. behind that. So, so developing the personnel on either side to be able to work together to operate the same systems. Um, our, our cooperation with the German Navy, for example, includes the exchange of liaison officers. So we have uh, U.S. officers posted with the German Navy and vice versa on a full-time basis. Many of those folks are FAOs. Uh, we have professional exchanges in one, one another's ships. Those could be for a, a short or long term for a deployment, for example. And we work very closely on exercises and operations together, um, again, toward those goals that Colonel Seiling mentioned of, of interoperability, making sure our, our forces can work together um, and understand how the equipment uh, each respective force has uh, can interact. Um, there are a lot of additional things that happen as well in, in this sort of example of Germany. Uh, for example, you might have a port visit where a U.S. ship comes into a German port for mm. a, a short time. You might have a diplomatic event. You might have an international event, uh, conference, celebration, holiday, or even uh, in a more unfortunate situations, a crisis or an accident where we need fast and knowledgeable coordination uh, with our German counterparts to be able to facilitate uh, all of these programs or a response if it were in those, those crisis or emergency situations I mentioned. Um, the, the FAO, Navy FAO or any other FAO, is really the on-ground on military representative to make this coordination happen, uh, whether that FAO is at a U.S. embassy normally, at a force headquarters, or maybe embedded with German forces or on a German ship. Um, 
if I could switch locations, uh, for example, to the UK, the UK is just completing a deployment of the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Right, her, um, her maiden, I think it's her maiden deployment, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. A large, large carrier, now the UK's fleet flagship and uh, a modern carrier. Uh, that deployment was coordinated with the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps aircraft and personnel and a U.S. Navy destroyer deployment. So all of these things had to happen uh, in, in concert with a lot of coordination behind it. Uh, from the U.S. Navy side, if I can refer to that example uh, of the Queen Elizabeth deployment once more, uh, Navy FAOs were involved at every step of coordination along the way to ensure that alignment with our U.K. allies. And then behind that, uh, that all of the operational, personnel, and technical coordination needs that would go along with this deployment were, were well put together, well planned in advance. And I think I read that there was a U.S. Marine Corps F-35 squadron that was deployed as part of the air wing on board the Queen Elizabeth. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's correct to my knowledge as well. So you, you could just think about that for a moment, all the coordination that yeah. would have to go on from the <laughs> the personnel training and technical equipment interoperability level to make yeah. sure that can happen. Uh, so, Colonel Siling, uh, you and I served together a long, long time ago at U.S. Special Operations Command. And, and I think one of the things that we learned in that assignment is that you simply cannot surge trust when a crisis erupts. And, and Andrew Kotala just mentioned that a little bit. You have, you have to build that trust in the good times. You have to nurture it, feed it, so that if a crisis erupts, our allies and partners have total trust in the U.S. and that we'll be there to bolster them. Uh, let's take a, a hypothetical example. Uh, the United Arab Emirates, for example, you, you were air attache there. Uh, if Iran were to directly threaten the UAE, what role would officers in the program your office oversees play in coordinating with the UAE military command structure? Uh, FAOs with specialization in the Middle East would clearly be an important resource under such circumstances. How, how might they participate in, in bolstering the UAE? No, that's a, a great question, and it um, this isn't just a hypothetical. I mean, this obviously did happen during my tour there. Um, you know, over the last year, it's been, you know, in the in the news, there were a number of UAVs that were uh, slamming into ships and uh, installations. And like you said, it, you, that trust isn't something that you can just jump in, parachute into and, and have. It takes a lot of time on target and, and having office calls and getting that relationship with people. And so when we did have these instances, it was absolutely, my phone was ringing in the middle of the night. Uh, it'd be high-ranking Emirati officers asking, hey, you know, what's going on? This thing just happened. And then, you know, we'd go into the office and they'd go into the office or we'd go have a visit with them and make sure that we're seeing the same thing, uh, have that exchange of information um, and making sure one party isn't moving out, uh, getting ahead of the other, that we're in lockstep with whatever kind of response is going to happen, that one isn't misinterpreting the event. Uh, and then they also, what you would do or what I would do is, you know, we have El Dafra, we have U.S. forces in country and in the region, and being the key uh, between the Emiratis and our U.S. forces and making sure that we're passing that information on, on and again, just to make sure we're all on the same uh, sheet of music. And this happens all the time. You never hear about it in the news. It's just, it's just something that we do. It's just a key feature of being a foreign area officer or an air attache or an attache in general around the world. Okay, and, and Commander uh, Kotila, same same idea for you. Let's take let's take Indonesia as an example, uh, and let's consider the 2004 tsunami that struck Indonesia, Thailand, and, and some other countries. 
and it killed hundreds of thousands and, and left just as many homeless uh, without food or water and clearly needing medical attention. What what role might a, a Navy foreign area mm-hmm. officer uh, with a Southeast Asia specialty play in coordinating uh, the U.S. response to support Indonesia in a, in a case like that? Sure, that's a great theme to consider, John, and, and you gave an unfortunate example of, of a crisis scenario where we're called upon to respond quickly uh, with our partners and allies. Uh, as you as our, and our listeners are aware, the U.S. military often responds to humanitarian crises around the world. Uh, in the military, we refer to these type of activities from a military perspective as humanitarian assistance and disaster reliefs, HADR operations. Uh, because our military generally has a lot of resources, logistics capabilities and assets, maybe ships, hospital ships, helicopters, medical personnel, for example, uh, that can be very helpful in these type of crises. They're prepared to deploy, re- prepared to respond quickly, and there's a large role for FAOs in these. Um, let's think for a minute that all of the th- uh, about all of the things that have to go on behind coordinating these response activities for humanitarian assistance or a disaster relief operation. Uh, from coordinating basic requests and permissions with the host nation or nations or other partners who may be involved, um, to clearing foreign customs requirements, for example, just just getting personnel and equipment into the country or or the site of the crisis, uh, to managing all of the logistics support necessary to bring in uh, any of the equipment or assets uh, uh, to the needed site, or the personnel that need to be brought there. There's really a lot that needs to go on uh, behind coordinating that. And because these crises are not predictable, oftentimes a, a foreign area officer or multiple foreign area officers could be Navy, could be Navy working with inter-service colleagues and the host nation and other partners. Uh, we quickly become the Defense Department's, or in my case, Navy's only advanced coordinating staff in that particular country. Colonel Seiling spoke a bit, and you spoke a bit, John, to the trust that needs to be established. Uh, that FAO really needs to know and be able to trust uh, the people on the, in the host country or other partners, know who they're talking to, understanding the expertise and capabilities of those counterparts, and enough trust to be able to work with them effectively and very quickly. So a FAO would quickly become the lead coordinator for U.S. military crisis response and relief support, and I believe that's actually been the case in many similar scenarios, uh, at least until additional personnel arrive and get acquainted with the situation, are able to build relationships and trust. Um, you also point to the value of having FAOs forward deployed around the world a little bit earlier when we talked to, to return on investment. Ideally, a FAO will be there and already have established relationships that trust and that local knowledge of of the culture and the language to be able to facilitate this type of response coordination quickly. And really, that's that's part of why they're there uh, full time building that relationship and building that trust. Um, That's what we do. Yeah, and I, and I wanted to talk. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we had talked a little bit about uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief because uh, both the Navy and the Air Force, as as both of you well know, uh, have a capability to move a tremendous amount of supplies in a very short period of time to respond to these kinds of crises. Uh, early in the year, we had uh, a couple of people coming on. We talked about. Uh, uh, Team Rubicon, which is a, a heavy on the U.S. military veteran side, uh, mostly a U.S.-based uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief response. And we also had uh, USAID, a member of USAID, on here talking about what the, the broader U.S. government response is. But the military is often called in to provide logistics support uh, to, for these operations because of the capacity that we bring to the table. Uh, so final question for you both, and I'll start with you, uh, uh, Andrew. Uh, what would you like to say to the people about, uh, you know, who ser- say 
let me let me rephrase that. What would you like to say about the people who serve in these respective programs, the FAO program, the Defense Attaché Office programs? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the Navy? And we'll finish with you, uh, Colonel Siling. You'll get the final word. Sure thing, John. Well, I, I could go on for quite a while. Uh, these are, well, this well is you a can't do of... that, but I mean, a few minutes anyway. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. So speaking for our Navy FAO community, our, our Navy FAO community is a group of uh, very diverse and tremendously talented personnel from many different backgrounds. We talked about the skill sets they bring, uh, uh, advanced education in a particular region in our strategy, language, regional and cultural skills, uh, just tremendous people uh, working around the clock and around the world to maintain and advance our national security objectives through building, maintaining, and advancing these these relationships we talked about on the show today. And uh, it's really an amazing group of people to be a part of, John. Uh, to any fellow FAOs listening live or to a recorded version of, of the show later, I want to say thank you for all that you do and stay safe out there. And uh, Colonel Siling? Oh, thanks for that. So kind of, you know, like a bumper sticker I'd just kind of like to, to leave with is, you know, our international airmen and guardians really are the lifeblood of our partnerships, and they are the face of the Department of the Air Force to our international partners. And they take these tough assignments, and they're out there, like you said, they're, sometimes they're one deep, and you're answering to multiple bosses. Uh, you have the ambassador, your defense attache, your service, the Office of Secretary of Defense. And so, but they're pros, and they do this juggling act uh, extremely well. And uh, like Andrew was saying, they're doing this 24-7, working to strengthen those allies and partners. And further U.S. Uh, national security interests. And I think, you know, I think it's the greatest job in, in the Air Force. I've enjoyed all my assignments, and I'm just uh, proud of our, our fellows that are out there and what they do every day. Well, folks, uh, we've come to the end of another edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Colonel Brett Siling and Commander Andrew Cotella, thank you for joining us this week to tell us about the Defense Attaché and Foreign Area Officer programs in DOD. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and what are your plans uh, for Thanksgiving holiday tomorrow? I'll start with you, Andrew. Well, I, I always look forward to cooking the turkey myself, kicking everyone out of the house for a few <laughs> hours, and uh, it's it's ready to go. <laughs> and how about you, Brett? I'm going to my uh, brother-in-law's and uh, be with uh, Jenna's parents, and uh, mom may be listening right now, so I can't wait to see you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> And folks, that closes this this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to spending time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love your feedback on National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, so please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and take care, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.